Greetings. Well, we've made it to episode two of Common Ground, the podcast where we seek to replace the partisan discourse, which seems rather ubiquitous in the media and our society, with a podcast that considers more diverse points of view. Now, of course, we recognize that we also have our own biases and might overlook something or just flat get something wrong. So please let us know if that happens so we could consider alternative perspectives and or set the record straight if need be. And to share your feedback with us, you can email the show at CG with BP. That's for Common Ground with Brandon Price at gmail.com. Again, that's CG with BP, all one word, at gmail.com. And speaking of feedback, I did receive some feedback on the first show that was both humbling and grounding. And I will share that at the end of the episode. As for today's episode, uh, I was considering doing something a bit more topical and controversial, such as an episode on finding common ground in our response to COVID. But I decided that although that certainly is fertile ground for a podcast, I'm not sure if I'm ready to risk alienating the tens of followers this podcast has attracted. So I'm going to wait until next episode to jump into the deep end of the pool with an episode on COVID origins, censorship, and misinformation. That may offend some folks on the left, right, and center, but hopefully we will find some common ground. As for this week, we're going to be presenting another episode about two groups that may seem to have quite divergent views to see if we can find some common ground between them. So without further delay, I give you this week's episode of Common Ground, Environmentalists and Capitalists. start off this topic, much like we did last week, by defining the groups we'll be discussing. So when I speak of the environmentalist, I'm speaking of someone who is extremely concerned with protecting the natural environment. And when I speak of the capitalist, I'm speaking of someone who supports capitalism which Wikipedia describes as an economic system based on the private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. Anyway, at first blush, 
these two sides may seem to have priorities that are in conflict. With the environmentalist most concerned with the protection of the natural environment, and the capitalist seeming most concerned with maximizing profits. Environmentalists may be concerned that capitalists are willing to destroy the environment for financial gain, while capitalists, on the other hand, may be concerned that environmentalists are willing to destroy the economy to protect or restore the natural environment. So, just as we looked for common ground between the equity-minded and liberty-minded last week, when we were exploring the topic of universal basic income, perhaps we can examine this topic and find some common ground between the environmentalists and capitalists this week. So... Before we dive into the concerns of the environmentalists and look at where we might be able to find some common ground with the capitalists in developing a strategy to address the environmentalist concerns, I'd like to start by recognizing some of the positive attributes of capitalism and free markets that we would like to try to maintain in this process. So first, I want to recognize that allowing someone to own property and choosing what they want to do with it, including loaning out their own financial capital to someone else, rather than consuming it, is a key factor in increasing the production capabilities of a society. And I know there was a lot of uh, jargon there, economics jargon there, but, but let me rephrase. In other words, if you earn money and instead of spending it, you loan it to someone who then builds a factory. And as a result of building that factory, it allows them to produce goods using less resources and to produce goods more quickly. Society now benefits as we can produce more than we could before we had the factory. So you as the capitalist who's delaying spending your money instead of consuming it, you're turning it into capital, using it to produce something else. You've chosen to invest rather than consume. And that has played an important role in increasing the wealth of society as a whole. And I think I should add a footnote here. Because in that last example, we saw how capital investment led to an increase 
in how much we can produce as a society. But I would be remiss if I did not point out that it doesn't guarantee that the extra goods produced would be distributed to our liking. Just that more goods would be available to be distributed and society would be wealthier overall. Okay, on to the second point. To the capitalists. I also recognize that free markets in which buyers and sellers voluntarily choose to engage in exchange generally produce positive results. When the buyer is free to buy something, if they feel they would rather have that item than something else they could buy with that money, and the seller is, compare, is compelled to sell that item, only if they feel they would be better off having the money from the buyer than keeping the item, then theoretically, both parties will only engage in the exchange if they feel they are made better off by doing so. And in that way, markets guarantee the buyer and the seller are better off than if they had not participated in the free market and the exchange. And I could hear someone say, well, I buy ice cream and I'm not sure it's better for me if I'm better off by doing so. And I guess a more extreme example would be like, if I bought heroin, I wouldn't be better off for doing so. And, and those points are true and probably a, a, a topic for another episode. Also, let's contrast that description of how the free market allocates resources by the buyer and seller making a choice to purchase the item, sell the item. What happens instead when the government produces a good or service? So for example, let's say you have a little bit of interest in learning about the free market and economics after listening to this episode. And let's say you were willing to pay up to $100 to do so. And now the government comes along and taxes you $100 to fund the local community college and then offers you the class you wanted to take for $50. Well, would you take the class? And I think the answer is yes, since the class is worth $100 to you. Um, you'll probably enroll in it since they're charging 50. But you would not have enrolled for 150 because it was only worth 100 to you. And 150 is what you actually paid if you consider what you paid in the tax to fund the college and the enrollment fee. And in this way, government transactions do not provide the same assurances that both the buyer and seller slash producer will be better off due to the transaction they participated in. And in this case, the buyer ended up paying more for the class than they were willing to, paying $150 
when they were only really willing to pay 100. And this is one reason that markets generally allocate resources a little more effectively than, than government. And I want to note here that I'm not suggesting that government should not subsidize education. I know there's some economists yelling at their podcast player that that example was a real oversimplification and that we really would need to include the benefit to individuals other than the buyer and seller. In the case of the value of the economics class that the student would be taking, we would need to not only include the $100 the student valued the class at as a benefit, but also the benefit others in society would receive from the student becoming more educated. And yes, I think it is important to recognize that in this example, all of us would benefit from a member of our society becoming more educated. Um, educated folks tend to make better health choices, they're less likely to commit crime, etc. Um, they're more likely to work and, and produce in jobs that help the tax base. So yes, the, the prior example left out the value of this benefit to society, but I do promise I will talk a little bit more about this later in the episode, so stop uh, yelling at your pod player economists. Finally, capitalist, I want to recognize that free markets have indeed made huge contributions really to the near elimination of poverty or at least extreme or absolute poverty worldwide. And I wanted to quote here, as explained at humanprogress.org, and I quote, Access to clean water, food, education, abundant and inexpensive energy, fertilizer, advanced agriculture, vaccination, and modern healthcare, science, technology, the internet, and democracy, all made easier through the wealth that free market generates. Improved global standards of living at an unprecedented speed. Freedom, in other words, has done more to improve humanity's quality of life in the last 200 years than have any other systems or tools over the last 15,000 years. As a result, child mortality fell from 43% to less than 4%, while doubling life expectancy for nearly every human on the planet. We have lifted the global literacy rate from 12% to over 86%, and reduced extreme poverty from over 89% to less than 9%, end quote. So yes, the wealth generated by free markets has done more to improve people's lives worldwide than could have been imagined prior to Adam Smith's publication of his famous book, Wealth of Nations, in 1776, which 
prescribed slash predicted the incredible power of free markets to increase the wealth of nations worldwide. Okay, so now that we have recognized the contributions of free markets and capitalists, let's take a short break and then dive into the concerns of environmentalists and why free markets sometimes fail to produce efficient outcomes, especially with regard to the environment. capitalist has made incredible contributions to society, but also can be concerned that in their quest for profits that the capitalists often fail to consider a very important variable, and that's the cost of their transactions to the environment. And I think even the capitalists might agree that the environmentalists have a point here, that free and really unregulated markets in which capitalists are primarily focused on profits may treat the environment as much of an afterthought. And to understand why this happens and discuss where we can find some common ground to address the problem, I think we need to understand the concept of market failure in general. So at the risk of completely alienating the audience here, if we haven't already done so, I'm going to provide just a little bit more economics jargon uh, explaining market failure, and I promise this will be short, and then describe it a little bit more in layman's terms. So from Investopedia, a market failure occurs whenever the individuals in a group end up worse off than if they had not acted perfectly rational self-interest. Such a group either incurs too many costs or receives too few benefits. The economic outcomes under market failure deviate from what economists usually consider optimal and are usually not economically efficient. Whew. So let's move past the jargon of the economists and take a look at an example of what market failure, well, looks like. So let's say that you are willing to pay up to $4 for a gallon of gas. And the gas station is willing to accept $3.50 for a gallon of gas to cover their costs. So now if you buy the gallon of gas for $3.75, you're 25 cents better off than if you'd not purchased the gas as you got something for $3.75 that was worth $4 to you. And the gas station is 25 cents better off than if they had not bought the gas, or not, I'm sorry, not sold you the gas. 
So since you're both better off undertaking the transaction in the free market, this transaction will occur. And again, we have both the buyer and the seller benefiting. However, what if as a result of you consuming the gas, there are unforeseen costs uh, to others in addition to you, the buyer? What if as a result of you burning gas, some people have their asthma flare up, others get cancer, and you know, the world gets so hot that our faces melt off. Okay, maybe not the faces part. Um, but you can see the problem. The free market exchange didn't account for the cost of the harm done to someone else by the sale of or by you burning the gas. And economists call this cost to a person not involved in the transaction a negative externality. So imagine the cost to society is a dollar per gallon due to the harm to others. In this instance, since the benefit that you, the buyer, would get from the gas is only $4, and the true cost of the gas, including the actual cost from the station, was willing to, to accept, plus the harm to other individuals, that total would be 450. And if the gas station was charging 450 and you were only willing to pay four dollars, well, then this transaction would not have happened. And it should not have happened in terms of efficiency because it actually made society worse off because the cost was greater than the benefit. Anyway, uh, I know that was a lot, but hopefully you followed that. And even if you didn't follow that kind of muddled explanation, the main point here is that free markets do not always effectively allocate resources because they don't consider the cost and benefit to those who are not involved in the immediate transaction. So they may not consider, for example, that the layer of smog being created is going to lessen your enjoyment in going outside. So the question is, how can we avoid inefficient transactions that make our environment worse off while keeping markets free? And we'll discuss that after this break. example before the break, we talked about gas consumption and how the sale of a gallon of gas between a buyer and seller 
failed to account for the costs to people other than the buyer and seller. Costs such as harm a person experiences due to not enjoying going outside because the city's now covered in a layer of smog. So these costs bore by someone other than the buyer and seller are called negative externalities. And these can include the pollution of the air or a river someone would have otherwise enjoyed if they had not been polluted. So how do we address these negative externalities? So in general, when a negative externality exists, the good associated with the negative externality will be consumed beyond the level that it should be if left to free markets. And by beyond the level it should be, I mean it will be consumed to a point at which the cost to society surpasses the benefit to society at some point, and the good continues to be consumed beyond that point. And conversely, sometimes we have positive externalities. And that's a transaction that creates a benefit for someone other than the buyer or the seller. Um, And in that case, that good or service will be consumed less than it should be if left up to free markets. So, for example, if education was only funded by free markets, it would get underprovided because the benefit to society would not be accounted for and too few people would participate in it if it was not subsidized. And I want to make an, an, I think what's an important note here. Um, I'm not making a judgment here about whether education should or should not be provided by the government. Just stating that if it's left to the free market, the amount consumed will be less than optimal because the free market does not account for the benefit to people other than the person buying and selling the education. The government could provide it and provide more of it to make up for that positive externality. Or the government could subsidize it and someone else could provide it and accomplish that same goal. And we see this type of scenario play out at our colleges. We see students are eligible to use their their federal Pell Grants at public institutions or non-public institutions. And these are essentially subsidies that encourage students to consume more education. Uh, So the government subsidizes education, but in some of the cases, it is actually 
provided by a private institution. So anyway, um, to make a long story short, the point I was getting at here is that you can promote government subsidizing something, but you it doesn't mean that you have to support the government provision of that thing. And I think, again, we'll save that discussion for another podcast. So anyway, with the understanding that negative externalities do exist and sometimes cause free markets to allocate resources inefficiently, well, what should be done? And there are lots of options. So for example, we could mandate that automakers produce cars that get better gas mileage. And so then they they would burn less carbon per mile driven. However, you could also argue that wouldn't make sense because in doing so, you would not only be distorting the free market by forcing producers to make smaller cars that are not in demand by consumers. And of course, you'd be encouraging people to drive smaller cars, which might not be as safe and you might have more people killed in accidents. And then additionally, if you mandated that automakers make more and sell more smaller cars, they get better gas mileage. Um, the people that drive those cars are also likely to drive more uh, because the cars get better gas mileage and thus offset some of the reduction in production and pollution by having the smaller cars. So another option to consider would be to subsidize green energy. And of course, the government could decrease carbon consumption by subsidizing some company to build more solar arrays and windmills. However, these subsidies have to be paid from somewhere. Uh, likely taxes. And regardless, do we really want the government deciding who the winners and losers are going to be in the competition between different forms of green energy? And additionally, government providing green subsidies would create a whole new level of bureaucracy and opportunities for corruption as these different corporations vie for these subsidies and these huge government payouts. So the final strategy, and the one I'd really like to discuss today, and that I think is the most efficient in both discouraging harmful emissions and maintaining the important role of the capitalists in allocating resources rather than the government doing so, is a carbon tax. And I know pretty much everyone hates the word tax, uh, but taxing the burning of carbon, you know, gas, coal, etc., is probably the most efficient option as it passes the actual cost of the negative externality, the damage done by this burning of this carbon to people other than the buyer or seller, 
it, it passes those costs on to those responsible for creating it. The people who are selling the carbon and consuming it rather than the third party who's being harmed by it. In doing so, it makes burning carbon more expensive to do and would also encourage those who are doing it, who are burning carbon, to consider other options, such as green energy, where feasible. And by increasing the cost of carbon, it makes green energy more feasible in comparison. Now, I admit here, it might be a stretch to think that the capitalist would agree to such a tax, carbon tax, regardless of how efficient it actually is, as it would further increase their costs. And additionally, it could put them at a competitive disadvantage versus foreign producers who are not paying the tax in their countries. Uh, however, if the tax was imposed in conjunction with a reduction in another tax, such as the corporate tax, um, this could be done so as to make this tax more revenue neutral or cost neutral, I should say, for the corporation. As the corporation would pay less corporate taxes and more carbon taxes, but again, still having the incentive to reduce carbon consumption in order to avoid the carbon tax. So, for example, if a tax on carbon makes producing electricity with coal more expensive, utilities might then buy more electricity from solar farms and wind farms. And if the price of coal-powered energy is expensive enough, it might even make the storage of solar power more viable and more of a competitive option for use when the sun isn't out. Um, essentially, as these options become more expensive, it makes the other options more competitive. So, in addition to the protests of the corporations, uh, consumers would argue that we already pay enough taxes and gas and goods shipped using gas are already too expensive, especially given the inflation that we've experienced recently. Um, and maybe when it comes to gas specifically, the tax we pay already accounts for the negative ex externalities associated with consuming it. And it doesn't need to be raised to account for the harm to third parties because it's already factored in with the taxes as they are now. And I think this argument might make sense in some states where those gas taxes are already more expensive, such as my home state of California. But looking at this kind of idea overall, uh, with regard to the idea of a tax on negative externalities as a method of reducing the damage to the environment, 
it would have the benefit of allowing the capitalist to still do what they do best, which is allocate resources efficiently while the tax would still help reduce emissions and thereby preserve a more efficient and competitive economy than we would have if we instead relied on the government telling producers what to produce or deciding who gets multi-million or billion dollar subsidies to reduce emissions. And finally, with regard to the tax to the consumers, keep in mind that there's nothing to say that we could not have a tax on carbon and offset it with a decrease in the income tax. Or the revenue generated from the carbon tax could be redistributed amongst the populace as universal ba basic income as described in the last episode and thereby providing all Americans with some money while also discouraging carbon consumption. So at the end of the day, I hope we can come to some consensus uh, regarding taxing negative externalities as an idea that could be appreciated by both capitalists as such a strategy allows free markets to continue to decide how to allocate resources rather than the government. And it's a strategy that could be favored by environmentalists as it encourages producers and consumers to alter behavior in a way that results in less damage to the environment. And I guess I'd encourage folks to think about it this way. You know, if you were starting an economy from scratch, would you rather tax carbon and pollutants as a means of generating revenue and thereby making consuming consuming carbon cost more uh, and in the process making green energy more competitive? Or would you rather tax people for productive behaviors like working or investing? So in the end, I'm not sure if I even convinced myself that we found common ground between the capitalist and the environmentalist here, but I think it was worth considering and I hope you learned a thing or two and that in doing so we produced a uh, benefit for you. And I guess a more educated you would also be a benefit for society. And so with that, let's take a quick break before we close the pod with a new uh, lighter feature. So one thing I've always been fascinated by is where phrases come from. And I thought it would be fun to pick an interesting phrase and share the origins of that phrase at the end of the show. So today I have two phrases to share. And the first of those phrases is steal your thunder, as in, sorry, Stacy, I didn't mean to steal your thunder by sharing your great idea with the group before you had a chance to. So 
according to the freedictionary.com, this idiom comes from an actual incident in which playwright and critic John Dennis, who lived from 1657 to 1734, devised a thunder machine by rattling a sheet of tin backstage for his play, Appius and Virginia, which was from 1709. A few days later, he discovered the same device being used in a performance of Macbeth, whereupon he declared, they steal my thunder. Our second idiom is show your true colors. According to Grammarist.com, the phrase show one's true colors is derived from nautical jargon. The colors of a ship are its flags. Sometimes the ship would lower its colors or even fly the enemy colors to gain the advantage in a naval battle. Therefore, to show one's true colors meant to lower a counterfeit flag and raise the flag of the sovereignty whose allegiance the ship truly pledged. And, and as a bonus, on a related note, according to Idioms Online, the idiom with flying colors, as in, I think I passed my exam with flying colors, originated with the practice of victorious ships flying flags of colors, from their masthead to announce their victory as they sailed back into port. To be flying the colors meant the ship had won. So hopefully you enjoyed learning about the origins of those phrases as much as I did. And as I mentioned before, um, I'd like to close the show by sharing a few of the reviews that we had. And before we go, I wanted to implore folks to go on to Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever other podcast aggregator you are using and leave us a review. Uh, Five-star review would be nice, but we'll take what we can get. But anyway, back to the reviews. Jim shared, great job. When people start putting more weight on the thought of others, our minds can open up. And I agree, Jim. And I also appreciated listener and a dear friend of mine, Renee's feedback. She said, I want to try to listen to it again, but I don't think I can. I fell asleep. And that comment actually reminded me of a, the kind of funny comments that um, there was a, a show, The Muppet Show, and they had two old critics on there that used to make funny comments that were similar to that. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, I would suggest that you search Statler and Waldorf, and I'm sure if you YouTube that, there will be some videos. Anyway, back to the review, uh, Renee also shared that I sounded like a robot, but that the music by Voodoo Suite was great. And Renee, I have to agree that the music by Voodoo Suite is quite catchy. And finally, the last review from Philip, who I think gets the award for the most eloquent review of a podcast I have ever seen. He said, hi, Brandon, the podcast sounds great and is exactly the sort of thing I've been looking for. 
About a year ago, I realized how siloed within my own ideological bubble I was and have been actively searching for podcasters, writers, commentators who are thinking freely independently and are more interested in pursuing truth and wisdom than proselytizing or defending a particular ideological dogma. The podcast is really unique because while there are multiple platforms attempting to provide commentary untethered from ideologic binaries, your podcast is the first one that I'm aware of with a mission state of finding common ground, facilitating connections between the left and the right. Important and really needed in the world today. Thank you so much, Phil. And that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us again for our next episode. And again, please feel free to reach out to us at cgwithbp at gmail.com. And also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast aggregator. And thank you so much for listening.